Welcome to Prestigious Minds, where we talk about inventors, businessmen, and entrepreneurs and the influence they had in shaping our world today. I'm your host, Jeremiah, and joined with me today is my co-host, Rob. And on episode three, we cover Rockefeller and discuss the business of Standard Oil and the antitrust suit that eventually broke the company apart. First, I would like to thank you for listening during your commute, no matter what time of day you may be traveling. If you enjoy learning more about history as it relates to business and engineering, you can sign up for updates regarding prestigious minds on our website, link provided in the show notes below. Also, don't forget, we're free to listen to and you can find us anywhere that you stream podcast. And we'd very much appreciate it if you give us a five-star review as it helps us rank higher in the podcast libraries. Thank you so much, and I hope you enjoyed this month's episode covering Rockefeller, Part 3, Antitrust and the Future of Standard Oil. Hello, Rob. How's it going, Jeremiah? Doing pretty well. So, we are here, we're on Episode 3 of John D. Rockefeller. What are we talking about today, Rob? Well, we're going to talk about how the Standard Oil gained even more prominence in its eventual downfall. Ooh, I'm getting a little spicy. Okay. Spicy. <laughs> um, where we last left off was Standard Oil has a monopoly, and we had hinted at the future antitrust suit. But before we get to that, we have a few things to kind of talk about before the antitrust suit once uh, pretty much the 1880s, 1890s of Standard Oil, the heyday. So we talked previously about how they went and created Standard Oil and they turned it into a trust, effectively a modern-day holdings company in 1882. So a holding company. Yeah. Can you go through that just a little bit for me? So a holdings company is a company in a company that's controlled by a board of people that holds a bunch of other companies underneath it. Okay. And at, at this time, there was never a large-scale version of that until Standard Oil created the Standard Oil Trust in 1882. Now, a trust is... Basically, like I had explained in episode two, is people who have investment in a company and they are the board of directors of that company. So before 1882, Standard Oil was operated individually per state. And this mainly had to do with uh, interstate commerce type laws where if I was a business in Ohio, I could not own and run a business in New York. So in 1882 the Standard Oil Company had become so vast that they had decided that they would dissolve their partnership in each one of these um, companies and create a Standard Oil Trust so that they could end up having all these individual state companies under one umbrella. They did this being Standard Oil of Ohio as the main parent company. So, can you run through the bit what the difference between a trust and a holding company would be? 
So the trust is the the group of people, individuals who own shares of the of the parent company. Okay. So the trust side of things would be the individual group of people would be considered a trust. The Holdings Company, which is what you would call it today, is a parent company that owns a bunch of subsidiary companies. Now, this was not called a Holdings Company back then. It was just called a trust. Right. And this allowed them to centralize their power and gave them a way to control the aspects of all the individual companies in each state more appropriately and streamline that process so that you don't have as difficult a time of controlling Ohio company, New Jersey, New York, effectively meaning that the same people who control the trust control the overall business dealings of each individual company in each state. Okay. So the reason you wouldn't want out of, out of state um, businesses owning or controlling a business in your company would be you don't have direct uh, legislative action that you can bring towards them. Like if you owned a company in um, New York and you were out of Ohio, if you couldn't, if you couldn't, or if you were not beholden to New York, like you, you were not, you couldn't necessarily be um, brought up on charges or something like that, or you couldn't, you know, have legislative action against you. Right. I believe that is part of it. The other side of that would be, so going along with that would be if you're a company in Ohio, Ohio as a state can only intervene on the Ohio portion of the company. Okay. So I believe this kind of was used by the states to prevent discrepancies in law so where something may be legal in new york but not legal in ohio those kinds of things and also i believe it had something to do with monopolies this of course changed over time like you can you can do that now you just have to make sure you're following the laws of each state but back then it was way different yeah they didn't have the infrastructure in law or general actual like physical civil in infrastructure to control that as well and the exchange of information is a lot quicker now than it was then yeah so in 1882 they created the standard oil trust and this allowed them to hold all of these companies underneath one umbrella but it also created a target because now as to where before they were individual companies and I say that in air quotes you can no longer act as if all these companies are independent per state because they are being controlled by one company and this was seen by the public as a bad thing this was monopolistic and so anti-monopoly sentiment grew across the United States in the late 1880s and in 1890, the Sherman Antitrust Act was passed, outlawing trust in con- combinations in restraint of trade. And Rockefeller ended up arguing that the Standard Oil Trust is not a monopoly when measured against the world market, which you could say was true. So one of the issues that the, um, I guess one of the laws would uh, 
kind of before is like if you control the math, like a large portion of a particular industry in the country at least, um, they wanted to make sure you didn't you you couldn't pretty much fix prices and gouge people and just control over a resource that they saw that was very either finite or um, extremely important to the public good. You wanted to make sure there was competition. The large ideas, competition breeds innovation and cheap, cheaper prices for customers. Kind of like if, you know, there was no competition to the iPhone, we'd still be having the iPhone 3. Because it's cheaper to produce, you don't have to do the R&D to get a better product if there's no competition. Yeah, essentially. So, you have this trust company that now at this point controls 90% of the U.S. oil market. You have anti-monopolistic sentiment growing in the United States among, among the general public. You now have the passage of the anti-Sherman trust, or let me rephrase that, Sherman Antitrust Act that didn't really have teeth because they couldn't prove the standard oil was a monopoly. And the reason why that was kind of goes back to the whole, well, if you can't control business outside of that state, then can you really say it's monopoly? Because the trust was instituted in one state, that state could bring upon a antitrust suit. And that's exactly what they did. In 1892, Ohio Supreme Court dissolved the Standard Oil Trust to separate them into 38 different companies. 38? 38 in quotes. You know what Standard Oil did? And Rockefeller and the rest of the board of directors moved their headquarters to New Jersey or the trust to New Jersey because New Jersey did not have the same laws. New Jersey allowed you to own companies outside of the state. Oh. Yes, they did not have any laws on the books at the time, which means that they did some shattery maneuvering, agreeing with the Ohio Supreme Court to, to dissolve the Standard Oil Trust. In reality, they moved the same trust company at in New Jersey and was headquartered in Manhattan, lower Manhattan, New York. They weren't, the trust company was not run out of New York per se, but the main holders of standard oil worked out of the main office in New York. So if Ohio had these laws in New York and New Jersey do not, um, Particularly, particularly New Jersey. Um, when you think the like, at least this would start to creep up on the Standard Oil Trust. I mean, wouldn't you? Would you not consider like maybe the more uh, I'm going to say progressive laws are eventually going to take over most of the industrialized U.S. So my thought is. You know, how how did this get so, how did Standard Oil become such a target? And how did the public view Standard Oil at this time? Standard Oil became a target when, first when they instituted their Standard Oil Trust. This really 
solidified the fact that all these standard oil companies were controlled by the exact same people. And then you had a woman in the early 1900s of the name of Ida Tarbell that had a series called The History of Standard Oil, which highlighted the not-so-great business practices of Standard Oil before that time period and leading up to that time period in the early 1900s. So what kind of series was this? Was it a magazine or a newspaper series? Yes, so she produced a series in McClure's Magazine, and I believe it ran for three to five years. And what ended up happening was they produced it as a book. Later on, they printed it all together, all those articles together as a book. It's titled underneath the same name. But what this really did was it drew... This would this would be the first major news slash like magazine media that was able to collectively take a company and put it underneath the microscope for the public eye. So you're saying that uh, Standard Oil became a target of the tabloids? Yeah. Which you would consider today? Yes, 100%. Wow. Has that ever happened before? Not like, like that. I believe maybe on more local scales, like maybe state or city, but not... This was a national level. And what you end up seeing is Standard Oil obviously favored candidate candidates that would make sure that they didn't pass antitrust-type suits and operated in supporting business growth. And this leads to Standard Oil being... Your classic big business, which is a more modern term, of controlling and paying for favorable treatment by government officials. So if I hear you correctly, maybe they they did a little controversial and corrupt business dealings with government officials. Is that what you're saying? Yes and no. The, the actual bribery compared to what people normally would pay was relatively small. It did happen. So we're not going to act as if it didn't. There definitely was drawbacks. And even if it's not written verbatim that standard oil gives X amount of dollars to X candidate, once they, you know, get elected and vote against the bill that may put standard oil under the bus. But what you did see was smaller donations, supportive candidates that they thought would be pro business, pro monopolistic business so that they didn't have to separate. So this wasn't necessarily a, a bribery for the benefit of, um, so they could do whatever they want. They just wanted to, they wanted the status quo to remain there. Exactly that. Exactly that. So you could consider it. It wasn't necessarily a, uh, it was more of a, a self preservation act of bribery than a malicious act of bribery. Yes, I would say so. So, yes, exactly what you said. They didn't approach congressmen and women and be like, okay, we want this specific piece of legislation to pass so that no competition can get to our point, which you see a lot today. Um, It was pretty much, okay, we don't want you creating any more laws that can restrict us. We don't care what other people do. If they, you know, say they do something that can rival us, that's fine. We know how to do our business, and we want to continue conducting business as usual. One of the things that I kind of um, take away from this would be 
if Standard Oil were to, were to have their way, and they promoted uh, more laws that favored their monos- uh, monopolistic endeavors, then it may be fine while the current um, board of trustees or owners were there, uh, i.e. Rockefeller. But in the future, someone more malicious could come along and actually have, uh, you, you know, more... They could gouge prices. They could run off competition. That's why it's kind of important to have the antitrust, anti-monopoly laws. But they wanted to do it for self-preservation. I don't think... I think they're a little short-sighted in that. Yeah, it was not necessarily to promote their business. And if we go back and point out how Rockefeller said, well, this isn't a monopoly on the world market, I would say that back then that was very futuristic of in frame of thought because most people weren't on the world stage. Right. Globalization was not not nearly I mean it wasn't even a consideration to a lot of people. No, no. Or a lot of businesses. Yes. And a lot of businesses did operate overseas. Standard Oil did have cheap lanterns and kerosene that they would sell to Asia and China specifically, and they also tried to compete in the Russian market, but never on the scale that they were in the U.S. And the U.S. at this time was a, like, robust, growing economy. Well, robust may be more of a shell word, Um, but they definitely were growing. You had plenty of resources. You had plenty of innovation and you had a lack of war for the most part that affected the overall economy of the U.S. So he was never able to institute the same monopoly over the world market. And because of that, he used that as a cry against any suits that came up, specifically in the Ohio Supreme Court case, which you saw that they lost. So it didn't work. I wanted to take a short break to thank you for listening to this episode of Prestigious Minds and to also remind you that we are on Twitter at PMindsPod where we share fascinating facts related to the podcast. This will be where the trivia question of the month will also be posted. Now, back to the show. What we see in the early 1900s after Ida Tarbell's series, which Standard Oil remained quiet on, This is not something you see a lot today. We always hear that any publicity is good publicity. Back then, Standard Oil had, and this came from Rockefeller almost exclusively in terms of temperament, was, I am higher than these allegations. I know the truth, and they are just spreading lies because they dislike me. They don't like that what I'm doing because I'm able to be successful. And so the motto more or less was, let's not be bogged down by these tabloids. Let's just keep on doing what we're doing. We won't say anything. We're going to remain quiet on these subjects. But I think that that possibly could have been the downfall of Standard Oil as a whole because it didn't. they didn't give an alternative view of the company. And so what you ended up having was Ida Tarbell's version of this big, bad octopus company swallowing up everything and being in the government's pockets. And I think in the 1800s, you can actually see a shift in the, the like if you were to gauge the trust of big business or what you would consider big business, then industry and the free press, then you would kind of see a shift of 
trust towards freedom of the press, I would think. Yes. About, around the late 1800s, early 1900s. And this is when commercial press really begin, began having a voice among national society, not just local society. There was tons of newspapers, and those newspapers had prominence in their cities, maybe even their states. Very rarely did they go past their states. Like we talked about, communication was on was a fledgling thing to have instant communication. Of course, electricity was right around the corner in the 1880s, 1890s. But because of that, this would be seen as a turning point. So you have Standard Oil Trust being the first major holdings company that you see. And then you have Ida Tarbell series drawing national attention to this monopoly. So you see the growth of two giants in two different industries really competing here. So we've seen how Standard Oil kind of planted the seeds of uh, dissent among the among the public but i want to know how they like what ended up happening what how they reaped what they sowed okay so this will be a fairly interesting dive into the subject so you had a candidate for president named theodore roosevelt he was a republican candidate and standard oil never really as a as a company supported one candidate exclusively anywhere. But they saw Theodore as being a fairly modest uh, person in terms of policy, and so they supported him. They they supported him as candidate, promoted him. He eventually got elected, and they sent representatives to talk to Theodore, and things went well. What they did not know was Theodore Roosevelt held his hand and very much disliked the big business treatment of of how monopoly treated overall economy. Now, this doesn't mean that Standard Oil was harming the general public, but what he saw was we can't have a rising competition, therefore better innovation and better for anyone else with these large trust companies controlling the majority of industry. And this wasn't just the oil industry. This spanned many industries, but Standard Oil being the largest and Ida Tarbell series really drawing on public sentiment led to Theodore Roosevelt being known as the trust buster, and he took on the largest one, which was Standard Oil. I mean, you can consider, um, I mean, you could do a whole series on Theodore Roosevelt, and I think that would actually be something interesting that we we could cover in a later, at a later date, just because of his influence on um, the economy, his uh, conservatorship. His, um, I mean, he was a historian, uh, a pretty good politician too. So, but if you take his his thoughts around, I want this for the public good, and you consider that among the Republican Party at the time, I think you would see more of a dissension from that. Yeah, and. It's a fascinating subject, and like you said, we can definitely go into a whole conversation and series just over Theodore Roosevelt's influence. But something to note specifically right here before we talk about the 
the antitrust suit brought on against Standard Oil was Rockefeller in 1896 had effectively retired from Standard Oil. He he remained president in title only and basically gave guidance. He was not actively involved. And the suit did not come about until 1907. So this you're you're looking at a decade before the actual federal lawsuit came against Standard Oil, which drew Rockefeller more mainstream because Ida Tarbell's series series took John D. Rockefeller and made him synonymous with Standard Oil. He he was the human version of Standard Oil, justly or unjustly, didn't matter. So whether you liked him or you hated him, he was plastered all over the. Uh newspapers and magazines at the time so to go back was his involvement after he retired very influential in standard oil up to the breakup of standard oil i would say that if anything he was a guiding light he was not overseer so he was not running the company whatsoever he passed that on to his uh second in command, which was Flagler, if you remember us bringing him up. Yeah. And Flagler was a little bit more rash, less patient than Rockefeller, which really pushed, he increased the dividends. So Rockefeller's idea on dividends was, well, yeah, we pay dividends, but we want to reinvest in the company. And if we raise dividends and we're paying shareholders, which would be the trustees, way more money and not reinvesting that in the company, especially if the company goes through a slight downturn because of economy or other business innovation that we need to invest in. Rockefeller saw this as a short sight and kind of like a, um, let's get the money while the getting's good instead of building the company to be long lasting. He did not particularly like that kind of endeavor. And if you look back to where we talked about how, Previously, in the produce commission company that Rockefeller was a part of, they did not like to innovate, but they liked to spend money. And so Rockefeller was not one to spend money ridic- like on ridiculous things. He was more of someone who conserved. Now, just to talk about dividends for a second, um, just to bring to light like w- how that affected uh, the company. It's um, If you consider a dividend like something, a portion of your profits that's given back to the shareholders. So that's why it's so important to have shareholders invest in your company so they get a return, uh, actually a regular return of money. So if you don't invest in R&D and you're just profit-driven, that's how you can really uh, negatively affect a company if you're just wanting to have a quick return, or not a quick return, but a regular return on your uh, investments for your shareholders. If that's all you're focused on, that can kind of uh, uh, be a problem in the longevity of your company. If you're not careful. Yes. And that's exactly how Rockefeller saw it. And Rockefeller being a very modest person didn't care for all the expensive luxuries of the time. So the federal suit came about, like we mentioned, 1907. This goes back and forth until 1911. Supreme Court finally rules that Standard Oil is a trust. Monopoly must break apart. And in doing so... Rockefeller actually became more wealthy than he was before because at the time he owned 
approximately a quarter percent of the Standard Oil Trust, which meant that he owned a quarter percent of all the subsidiary companies the Standard Oil Trust was in control of. So when these broke up into 33 different companies, I believe, he owned 25% of all these companies, and he reached his pike, pike, he reached his peak net worth of $900 million in 1913, and that is 1913 dollars. Wow. So I know the the ratio of $1860 to now is around $35, so if you can do the math and account for a little bit of inflation, that's pretty impressive. So the problem with calculating wealth that is that old today is you cannot simply use inflation in percentages in terms of, okay, well, inflation rate was this, which means this dollar is worth this today. Per dollar, you can say that, but how much that would buy you is exponentially different. And so when you start getting 100 years older, because I don't believe that they start tracking actual inflation until 1913, around there, 1918, somewhere around there. So what you end up with is they would take a percentage of the GDP which is based on your population and the in the influx and growth of the population versus economy and stuff. Rockefeller effectively at the height was 3% of the GDP at the time. You equate that into today's dollars, he would be worth four, over $400 billion, which is why many consider him to be the richest person in history, even today. Now, that's kind of like a uh, factorial nugget that we gave you in essence Rockefeller was pretty much separated from Standard Oil at this point besides just being a shareholder he had withdrawn after the case and the only reason why he was even around was because the antitrust case was brought up so after Standard Oil was broken up um what happened? What happened to it? Did it did it dissolve into companies that really don't we don't really see today, or what kind of uh, is is there any trace of it today that you can you can kind of see? Yes. Yeah, so there's a few different companies that you may recognize that are a direct result of the Standard Oil breakup, and that is Mobile One, which is still very prominent, and then you have Chevron. Corporation and then Exxon, which in the 90s, the, uh, Exxon and Mobil joined together to create Exxon Mobil. And then British Petroleum Company actually bought out Standard Oil of Ohio in 1987 and became British Petroleum underneath the name BP in 1998. And they eventually bought Amico, which was another Standard Oil company. And then Chevron ended up buying up Texaco, which was a completely independent company from Standard Oil. In 2001, um, Penzl, Atlantic Richfield Company, Buckeye Pipeline Company, which is an Ohio company, Union Tank Car Company, all of these are subsidiary companies of Standard Oil that have merged and or still exist today. So even today, you can see the evidence of Standard Oil and, and how its influence really affected the United States oil market. And uh, even though it wasn't started out as a... a production of uh, gasoline or anything it was more crude oil or uh, kerosene from crude oil um, you can kind of see its influence in the petroleum market yeah i'm pretty sure if you look at four 
of the top 10 petroleum-based companies in the world today are direct derivatives of Standard Oil. Wow. So we've talked about how Standard Oil uh, was affected by its breakup and its subsidiaries or its um, uh, little uh, monopolistic children, if you will. How was Rockefeller affected by the breakup? What, what was his life after Standard Oil? So given the fact that Rockefeller had retired in the late 1890s, kept around for the tr- antitrust suit and to help guide the current office in Standard Oil, he started spending his time more leisurely. He took up golfing as well as, quote-unquote, playing the stock market, and philanthropy. Philanthropy became a massive portion of his life. It always was a large portion, as we mentioned earlier, but around the turn of the century, he really started digging heavily into spreading his wealth among education and medical endeavors. Can you give us a couple examples of that? So... Actually, I believe that that is a good topic to discuss in our next episode. Oh. I know, I know. We're going so well now. But, don't fret. Around the time of the late 1890s, UC Rockefeller starts investing inside of uh, education and medicine. And there's some pretty large names that you'll recognize, but you'll have to wait to see what company... not even companies, just institutes and universities that he invested in in the next episode of Prestigious Minds. So watch out for episode four of Prestigious Minds. We're going to talk about Rockefeller and going to deviate away from his business dealings and more into his philanthropy. And then we'll discuss the lasting impacts that John D. Rockefeller had on not just the U.S., but the world and society as a whole. And we'll see you again next time on Prestigious Minds. Thank you for listening to this episode of Prestigious Minds. If you enjoy the show, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you stream. This is very much appreciated and helps us reach more people. Also, we upload new episodes at the end of each month, so make sure you keep an eye out for that. We also are on Twitter, where we will be posting our trivia question at PMinesPod, just as a reminder. And thank you for listening.